leverage the resources that are available around you for sure, you know, what is in public domain, but also sit down with the right, you know, people within our organizations and learn, learn from them, listen. Hi, I'm Andy Murray. Welcome to It's a Customer's World podcast. Now more than ever, retailers and brands are accelerating their quest to be more customer-centric. But to be truly customer-centric, it requires both a shift in mindset and ways of working, not just in marketing, but in all parts of the organization. In this podcast series, I'll be talking with practitioners, thought leaders, and scholars to hear their thoughts on what it takes to be a leader in today's customer-centric world. Marketers today are well aware of the importance of having access to high-quality customer data. But in a world where we will inevitably see increased focus on data privacy and regulation, it is critical to understand how to build a customer data strategy that will stand up in a more regulated and cookie-less world. To better understand the challenges, I spoke with Despina Kakarachi, CMO at Strategy Tonic. Now, I've known Despina since our time together at ASTA, and I'm always interested to get her perspective on evolving topics in the data and customer experience space. Her breadth of experience working in markets with some of the strictest data privacy laws gives her a unique insight into where the industry is at today and how retailers and brands in the U.S. can prepare for increasing regulations on data privacy. Despina also fielded a few questions from Professor Molly Rapert's marketing class. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Hello, Despina, and welcome to the show. It is so good to see you today. Hi, Andy. So good to see you, and thank you for having me over. Well, Despina, uh, most of us aren't going to know this, but you and I worked together at ASTA back in the day, probably, I think, maybe 2017, 18, in that time period. Y- yeah. And you came on board uh, to help us think through and uh, accelerate our data strategy and how we were looking at customer data. Well, what could we do with it? Uh, how we could build the right infrastructure? And some work had been started, and we were really chasing, perhaps, better data at that time for market mix modeling purposes so that we could do better get better insights with customers but you kind of helped us get it even moving further than that and if you look at what's happening today with retail media networks we definitely were on the right track but one of the things that i appreciate uh so much about you and how you work and working with you is that this space can be really technically complicated and it takes a lot of investment and what you did so well was not only interface with the SMEs and the technical teams that had to come along and with IT and all of the folks that had to help build some of the tech stack work, but you were able to explain what you were doing to me in a way that I could go get the money you needed uh, from a senior executive level. And I think that is so rare because you know my job was to support the vision of what you're trying to get done, understand it, of course, but then get the resources. And so often that is a real challenge if you don't have someone that could put it in perspective for senior leaders to understand. And so I think, first of all, I just want to say thank you for that. And you're still a person I look to to say, Despina, what's really going on here? Explain this to me. 
Um, so I'd like to start with perhaps, you know, what were some of the experiences you had that in your career that built that capability for you to be able to go down deep when you need to go deep, but be able to explain it to senior leaders and how you're using those gifts and skills today? Well, right. So to start off, I'm not a techie. I just speak tech. You know, over the years, you know, I tried to get close to those guys and tried to be the, the business whisperer for tech. You know how this works. So this, this bunch of very, very clever people uh, can talk your ear off, you know, uh, tech, 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 tech. But, you know, business, on the other hand, doesn't understand any of what they're doing. So what I managed to do was be the in-between the business and the tech guys, put the vision in front of them, understand what uh, is needed from an investment point of view by giving to the business also what the outcomes we would have from this investment. And this is the core thing. The great thing with you was that I had cross a leader that could understand the vision and could understand you know, why this investment and how it would impact bottom line, how it would impact our customers and how they... Uh, life can be better in that respect and our uh, company can benefit from that. Not all leaders are like that. <laughs> Let me tell you this. <laughs> Maybe they had 10 years in IT before uh, Procter & Gamble paid off. Who knows? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, uh, it's not over, uh, ever, you know, easy for people to understand uh, when they are in a C-suite or even, you know, um, direct reporting uh, lines and all that to understand what the data and what the tech can do for them. For so long, you know, uh, it was kind of the approach of digital. We built it, they will come in and it was all about websites and all that. But digital over years has evolved, as you know, right? And data is actually the cornerstone for everything. So if you don't get that right, you, you're not going to gain be you know, uh, benefiting from anything that comes uh, from digital transformations. So, you know, uh, over the years, talking with tech te teams, understanding what vendors had to offer, because this is very crucial as well. You know, not all businesses have huge budgets that they can allocate to very high-end tech or, you know, the big, you know, uh, vendors, we know who they are. But, you know, also try and find the niche uh, vendors and to bring them on board and uh, complete the vision, to be honest. Yeah. Well, you know, retailers have been, I'm going to go down this path of retailer uh, perspective and a brand perspective and try to cover both of those in the time we have. But retailers have been working with data, you know, for years, uh, scanner data, transaction data, and at times uh, share data as well. But what is really new and different is in the concept of really understanding what could be done with first party data that is, especially first party data is very identifiable and such, which is leading obviously to this uh, quick and global stand up of retail media networks, which, you know, every retailer has pretty much already jumped in the pool by now, but there's still a few in those early stages. As you look at um, a, at this space of first-party data, I guess my first question is, if you're not familiar with it, uh, why is there such a, a move to get access to first-party data, and what is making that so valuable? Okay. Marketing, traditionally, you know, in the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, has been relying on third-party data. 
right, and cookies, and all these, you know, uh, things that the agencies would bring, you know, to, to bring to life uh, digital marketing. How do you reach an audience? It wasn't well-defined from the company per se, it was just a concept. So the data within the companies, to your point, retailers had a lot of that, but also they had it in silos, right? So transactional data didn't talk to anything pertinent to customer per se. You couldn't identify the customer. Remember in our Asda times, one of the thing, first things that we did together was demystify almost the anonymized data of credit cards and start getting insights of what people were doing and how they were uh, behaving where they were shopping with Asda. On any... On, on any media campaigns that we were doing, though, we're not initially using them. We try to utilize them and bring them, you know, forward through our CRM and do more one-to-one -one communications. But even personalization was uh, based on third-party data, right? And the cookies that uh, we were collecting uh, through our digital properties. Now, first-party data now, that the third-party data is going to disappear magically next year, and we all know that, cookie-less kind of uh, world. Uh, there are two sorts of companies. There are other the companies that would rely heavily on Google's, let's say, next move and what they would get uh, in place to replace third-party data. Would it be some sort of sandbox? I don't know how this would be shaped. There are a lot of theories out there. And then there are the companies that already started collecting uh, first-party data. And this is the key. The thing, though, is not only to collect this data, but put them in a form that is usable. And this is where 80%, I can tell you, uh, of companies are not ready. They might have a CD, they might have like some sort of tech stack around it, but how they will use it is still, you know, up in the air. Well, that's a great point, because if you look at first-party data and retailers, not all first-party data is the same. Uh, there's a quality issue there, and, and coming from experience on the retailer side, it is really hard yards to get your customer data in a fit-for-use way, uh, way structured. Uh, that's really helpful. It took us years to work across that because we had data coming in from financial services, from the scan-and-go type signups, from you know all these different areas. Uh, and then GDPR hit, which really hasn't hit the U.S. at the same level. And what we thought were you know seven million records of, of identifiable customers ended up being three million. By the time you know we went through that, and so I uh, talk a little bit about that that journey of getting really viable, monetizable, useful first party data for retailers. It's not a, it's not an um, an overnight job. It is absolutely not, and you know this this shows as well the maturity of the organization. And when I'm talk about maturity, I don't talk only about digital maturity, but also organizational maturity. Do you have the right talent within to do the work to create this vision, educate the C-suite, and you know put that forward for an investment uh, to be uh, given? So you have two two kind of uh, approaches there. All right, we invest, we do the whole tech, but we don't necessarily have you know the knowledge or the people of what we do with it. Or you have the people that know what they do to, with it, and you don't necessarily have the tech, or you are trying to get the tech, and then there are the few companies that have both. Okay, even that though, you know, 
requires maturity of the market. To your point, retail, um, you know, media networks are so successful and they are emerging more successfully because a lot of the money that has been allocated to, you know, digital campaigns overall now have shifted to places that actually you can reach the audience that you want to reach and audiences that are already your customers or where your customers are. Imagine now if you combine this, because this is also a lot uh, of money invested in uh, marketing dollars in that respect. But imagine now that you have also, you know, your own understanding and your own insights for your customers so that you can leverage better the, the networks. But also you have the ability either through tech or, you know, um, through other means, through third party uh, agencies and all that to reach the audience that it is already in your database. This is the difference. Retail media networks, you know they are your customers, all right? Because there is a digital screen or something that you know the customer that is buying from you will come and see it. But also you want to have, you know, a direct relationship with your customers. And this is where, you know, uh, a lot of money should be allocated. And this is something that companies don't necessarily understand and do to the extent that they should do. Also, there's part of analytics because of that, all right? Because all, you know, the web analytics that most of the companies hold at the moment is not geared for first-party data. It's geared for companies, all right? So there is another level of infrastructure that you need to, to take care of there and, you know, bring the right talent to be able to achieve that. But you've talked about talent quite a bit now already. And uh, as you do your own consulting work and work with companies across Europe in um, building out their digital transformation, their customer data strategies, what role is uh, upskilling, does upskilling play in this space? And is that end up being one of the major challenges is the upskilling of the organization to be able to understand the technologies and be able to get useful results out of them. Mm -hmm. So again, there is a lot of talent out there. Okay. And especially now after all the layoffs of the big, you know, digital giants, there is a lot of available talent. Don't get me wrong. What is missing and the, the missing link between that getting the right talent in is the education of the C-suite. I will bring you an example. One of the things that I do through my consultancy is like courses like data for non-data professionals, digital transformation for non-digital uh, professionals. And this concept started uh, as, you know, educating NEDs, uh, non-exec directors. Okay. And there was a big audience there. Now, as I go into organizations and we start discussing about digital transformation, I find more and more that the C-suite participates in those trainings and they need to, Andy, because if they don't understand the fundamentals of what the talent uh, will tell them if they have them or how they would bring the right talent in to achieve this transformation, then it's a good point. You know, everything will fall. Well, not only that, the, the, the financial investments now are not trivial. And so if you're weighing out an investment in this space versus capital allocation towards store remodels or if, you, if you're a retail case, you know, those are really big calls to make and you have to understand that. And most C-suite people have not grown up with these technologies because they didn't exist. And so it's a more recent, you know, thing that they've not had hands-on keyboard experience with. When you don't have hands-on keyboard experience, it can be really a mystery, right? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. So when you say I need to have a first party uh, data strategy, what do you mean by that? What's in a first part a customer data strategy that you would consider, okay, that's a good strategy, or really you're just got a technical, you know, technical dream of wish list of things, or, you know, I mean, what's, what is a data strat, a customer data strategy that you would look at and say, okay, yeah, that, that, that looks really right. Now let's go from there. Absolutely. Three things. First, have, you know, a direct channel with the customers. So Omnichannel allows that. We have so many channels now that we can collect data from our customers and they're super willing to give them if there is, you know, a trade-off, if there is value exchange between the customer and the company. Let's, th this is where your strategy should start. Why should I have it? And what would I do with it? Okay. Second is, okay, now I have the wish to have them. How do I collect them? Where do I put them when I collect them? And that implies, you know, some sort of tech, uh, tech stack uh, involvement. And the third one is, all right, roadmap of tech. I don't have the full, you know, Lamborghini from start. I will do every step of the way what I can with it and try to get value, derive value out of that. You can get, you know, value from just have an email address for the customer and do some sort of, you know, even free type of CRM. Doesn't have to be elaborate. Doesn't have to be, you know, uh, super complicated. Then you derive insights. The more you start, you know, uh, collecting and the more you start getting what the customers are doing, the more you understand about your business. And that impacts bottom line because you make better decisions. You make better decisions on you know, your products on your services on how you market them and how you price them and how at the end of the, of the day you collaborate and you communicate with your customers. Make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. And I think, you know, my experience from the journey is definitely start with a data strategy that leads to better insights to make better decisions around your product development opportunities, uh, better effective use of marketing by understanding you know, are you targeting the right groups that um, versus, you know, people you would might have already gotten and driving true incrementality. The other side of it, though, is is trying to chase personalization, which has been a buzzword a bit. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this personalization approach. And uh, do people what, what when we mean when we talk about personalization, what do we mean? Is that, you know, because it can get quite creepy if you take it too far. Uh, and, and it can also be really difficult to scale. So how do you look at personalization? Is it lookalike approaches or is it really one-to-one? -one? I would say a little bit of both. And again, it depends on your products and services. You know, it's, it's where you start thinking personalization. You can talk about a product to a wider audience, you know, and then you look at lookalikes. But also there are times that you would speak one-to-one with, uh, with your customers. Might I remind you what we're doing, you know, with um, the data that we had on baskets, right? And we knew what people were uh, shopping. So, you know, if we wanted to have them shop more frequently or more, you know, increase basket value or increase frequency of shopping, you know, we would go with lookalikes, remember that. But when we wanted to, you know, to, to, communicate a specific offer or communicate a specific time, like remember Easter, very 
very, you know, current or, you know, the back to school or Christmas or whatever, then you want to be able to do one-to-one personalization because what you buy might not be the same thing that I buy. So at that point, you know, without being the creep, it doesn't have to be that, you know, I know what brand of toothpaste or, you know, whatever brand or whatever you are buying, but it's, it's good to go and give you at the time that I know that most likely you will buy that, give you a relevant offer or give you relevant content around it. So one, one doesn't need to be creepy. You know, we have seen these examples, you know, and, and with a big, you know, tech companies like, you know, the Facebooks and Instagram and all that, sometimes you caught yourself talking about, you know, oh, I want to buy this. And after, you know, a day or not even a day, you see ads constantly about what you just said. All right. That is creepy. That That is borderline creepy, let's say. You know, relevance, it doesn't have to be creepy. You can be relevant one-to-one and then you can be relevant with a wider uh, brush, let's say, of uh, of communications. Yeah, a simple uh, graph that you showed me was an RFM model, which you were the first to show me that uh, on a deciles, uh, 10 deciles that um, really helped me think through strategically how to market differently when we're talking about the value moving fours and fives up uh, versus looking at ones and tens. Can you explain what RFM is and the and what you did with that and what kind of uh, use cases it could lead to? Okay, RFM uh, means recency, frequency, and monetary value, okay? And it is one of the most common uh, segmentation models, if you like. Okay, so how uh, recent uh, the last interaction with your customer was, you know, how frequent the interactions are, and what value you get out of this customer, okay? So acquiring the customer, you know, is one thing. And you pay, let's say, a one-off for that. Then you start understanding your customer. Then communicating and getting, you know, uh, the value out of the customer has to come from exactly this model. How recently uh, they interacted with you and how frequently. So you save a lot of marketing uh, money on that and you keep your relevance because by monitoring the recency and the frequency, you understand a lot more of your customer. So you get the insight in. Okay, so if you remember, the first thing that we did with uh, the RSM model was to um, implement it through CRM. So, you know, communicate via, you know, emails and post notifications and whatever else, whatever other means we had in our uh, CRM arsenal. What we didn't do back then was implement it in our overall digital strategy and the digital marketing strategy. We're thinking more campaign at that point rather than long-term uh, interaction and uh, communications with a customer. And this is where companies might lose a little bit, you know, brand marketeers uh, versus, you know, the digital CRMers, whatever you want to call us, you know, the nerds of the marketing, you know, we're not always seeing eye to eye because there was always, you know, a shiny thing that, you know, agencies were putting in front of us. And don't get me wrong, we laughed about that too, because there were so many, you know, uh, things that we could do with that. Might I remind you that campaign in Christmas that we had, that we created, you know, the wishes 
that our customers put in a, in a platform that we created, how much insight did we get out of that? It was amazing. It was phenomenal. And I think it was the first time that actually brand and the Digi Birdies came together and, you know, we created something fabulous. So definitely, you know, uh, utilize segmentation and that would help anyway with your lookalike audiences, even, even in acquisition mode. But also it would help with, you know, the building the ongoing relationship with the customer. Well, it also lets you uh, formulate a test and learn strategy because if you segment the, your customer data into an RFM model, especially into like the 10 deciles that we had, you can see what happens when you get really intentional about trying to move a one to a two and realize that that cost investment does not nowhere near pay out as much as moving you know, a five or six up where a 10 would be your most recent, most frequent, most high value customer. Uh, moving an eight to a nine or a nine to a 10, one intuitively think that that is a, a really profitable venture, but the cost to make those behavioral changes uh, it weren't weren't there as much as the real sweet spot being in that five and six is moving up to six and sevens. Exactly, exactly. And also uh, that helped with determining where we are going to allocate the money. So the recency and the frequency also give the, gave us signals of, you know, the channel that the customers were utilizing. So moving some money from, let's say, TV or, you know, other, you know, more expensive medium to more, you know, targeted campaigns on digital, it was only beneficial for our marketing budgets, remember? Yep. Yeah, 100%. Let's go a little bit more macro for a second. Uh, Europe, uh, if you've worked in Europe as you do and I've had, the opportunity to do has much more strict data and privacy laws that really do affect the marketing ecosystem. Um, the U.S. has got it in pockets, but nowhere near what we've seen in Europe. Uh, but yet, you're able to do successful marketing in those markets. Um, you know, explain what what you see happening on that macro level and what might happen. Uh, everybody seems to think that, or that everybody's got different views on, will we really get to a cookie-less environment? Is that really going to happen? Uh, so there's some skepticism in the U.S. about it. But having lived through some of those changes, uh, it's more significant than I think a lot of people are, are allocating their thought to plan for. And so what's your thoughts on that? So definitely, you know, when we went through GDPR, you know, in Europe, consent was the key message there, you know, get customers to give you the data in their own free will, rather than, you know, trying to get to harness them in, you know, sketchy ways or, you know, leverage little windows that still exist today through GDPR, right? You know that I live in Dubai now and I have been working for the last almost three years here. You know, here is still far west, right? <laughs> there's, no, there's no such thing as, you know, kind of privacy laws or anything, you know, uh, anyone can send you anything in that respect. So you have like almost the two, um, two opposites that I haven't experienced. So GDPR was a great lesson of how you get the consent. Here, everyone is talking about it, but no one is doing anything about, you know, to, to, to remedy the situation. Now you have Google that, you know, these guys announced in 2019, if I remember correctly, the first time about, 
this cookie-less kind of world. A lot of the revenue comes from that. You know what I mean? From from cookies and, you know, the, the advertising. And if you consider paid sets, it's like, you know, they're bread and butter. So there will be some sort of new way of leveraging data overall of customers. Because if anything, when we set something on Google or when we interact with Google, we give freely our data, right? Now, the consent is still a little bit of a, you know, gray area there. But there would be ways. They talk a lot about, you know, kind of um, uh, gated um, sandboxes that, you know, customers will give consent there. And always, you know, uh, you can remove consent. Rather than give consent, you can remove consent. But it's still to be seen. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. A, a lot of money. That I do think the GDPR experience made us better marketers uh, because... For sure, because you, you looked at, okay, it's not only getting consent, but then what do you, what's your plan to use the data you collect? And if you're going to find uh, out if a customer's got children at home and, you know, perhaps their ages, you do need to still, you have to then have a data plan on how, you know, why is that data viable? Otherwise, you can't keep it. It's going to, you know, roll off. And so it, it, that makes you be more thoughtful about what you're trying to collect and, if you're going to ask for um, a family household size uh, and, you know, how many kids they have at home and their ages, then, you know, what's your marketing program from a content side that's going to service those data points that gives value back for having that data? And if you don't have that worked out, you can't keep that data. And so it's it's got a lot of integration I- I implications to your total marketing program at writ large. Despina, let's switch over to some marketing student questions. You know, as we talked earlier, I do a lot of work with um, Professor Molly Rapert in the Walton College of Business and her marketing program there. And we had an opportunity to get a couple student questions in that uh, understood your professional background and were interested in asking a few questions. Are you up for a few uh, student questions? Sure, sure. That that would uh, keep my mind, uh, you know, young. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it does. Uh, the first is from Indu Sen. Uh, she is a uh, double major in information systems marketing at data analytics. Um, and she has been talking quite a bit or asking a lot of questions around this area of the role of emotion in the world of data as we start looking at data. Uh, and her question is, how can companies measure the experiences that they want to deliver in less overt invasive ways of maybe direct surveys to better understand what their customers want, think, feel, need, and do so without having to actually ask them? Great question. And definitely this girl is far smarter than I am. (laughs) So let me tell you how I understand it, all right? You know, we capture signals at the moment that are more uh, in the sphere of, uh, of interaction rather than emotion, okay? But customers do tell us a lot about how they feel about our brands, how they feel about our products. There is a a whole bunch of social listening type of tools out there that you can collect and you can understand at least the sentiment. The more we move into, you know, more um, interactive uh, universes, and this is, you know, again, comes to metaverse and how metaverse will change the behavior down the line because it will change the behavior of customers. Not necessarily now. We're not, I don't think 
other customers or brands are ready for what they're doing for, for the time being is like a nice to have but this is where you will have a direct insight and a direct if you like uh, emotional uh, signal for a customer at the moment you only get it through sentiment analysis and how you know uh, people will write about your brands how they will critique your brand what reviews they're uh, they're uh, leaving what you know the conversations around your brand are i think in the in the future we will have more signals more emotional signals but it needs tech good excellent i think that's a great great answer right? the second student and last is uh, taylor poe who's a marketing major and finance major uh, she is asking a question basically around the line between how much we should know and uh, about customers and balancing that personal experiences that you were able to give them with the technology you have versus the privacy concerns. We touched on this a little bit, but she's asking, what advice do you have for marketers that uh, where the technology could allow you to do a lot more? And where's that line when that goes too far from a privacy perspective uh, to the customer? I think GDPR taught us a lot about that. You know, to your point, we went from 10 million customers to 3 million customers, okay? So be transparent with your customers. That's my key advice there. Do not assume that, you know, they would give you uh, their consent and, you know, be interested in what you would say without uh, being, you know, on the ethical side of things. And the more on the ethical side of things you are, the more uh, of a winner you would be. Because customers and consumers generally now, they are quite uh, informed around privacy laws and about, you know, what makes sense for them and what doesn't. So be transparent and get consent. That is uh, two non-negotiables for me. Yeah. Well, that's actually a pretty good rule of uh, thinking for even your associates, you know, your employees, your peers, uh, transparency and uh, candid nature is a good way to work, not just uh, work with your customers, right? Absolutely. They would appreciate it. You would be rewarded for that because when they give the consent and you are relevant to your communications to them, you know, it's a win-win situation for both them and uh, the brand. Yeah. Hmm. Well, one last question for you, Despina, that I think would be helpful uh, for our listeners to know, and that is we have a lot of, speak to a lot of students uh, you know, just entering into the workforce and a lot of young professionals that are in their first assignments or so. Uh, how does one go about building a competency in the space of customer data strategy and the kind of experiences you've got? Uh, you know, where, where would you say they start and how do they think about a career in that space? Okay, there are a lot of resources out there for sure. So read, 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 but also sit down with the techies. You know, they're not the easiest people always. <laughs> and sometimes it might be a bit pedantic, you know, in their interactions with people, but definitely you learn a lot. And actually they do appreciate when people from the other side, from the marketing side or from the business side are trying to understand what they do for a living. So, you know, Leverage the resources that are available around you for sure, you know, what is in the public domain, but also sit down with the right, you know, people within our organizations and learn, learn from them, listen. 
that's, you know, sound advice for any professional or any young person that starts the journey. There would be leaders that they would be, you know, coaching them and influencing them and mentoring them, but they will learn a lot from, you know, the peer groups and the different uh, types of tribes, let's say, within an organization. If there's a whole lot of room inside an organization for people that can interface with data scientists and, you know, highly technical engineering teams and being able to translate that to business needs. A lot of people call those product roles. Uh, you know, a product person has to play that role all the time. Uh, but to, to your point, you don't have to be a data scientist to be successful in uh, a, a customer data strategy development. Uh, it helps for you to understand the capabilities of data science and what it can and, and can't do, what kinds of data is quality data, uh, and looking past that to the source of the data to make sure you understand, you know, what are the what are the right questions to ask of the data that the data can actually deliver against. And um, there's a, there's often a gap of leadership in that space, which you came in and filled for us from an ASTA perspective. And it's highly appreciative uh, because it starts to marry these very deep competencies uh, in a way that the business needs. We need to understand this is a question worth asking, a problem worth solving. And you know what? We don't have the data for that, but that's where we should go get it versus saying, let's get all the data we possibly can and hope that there's a use case out there somewhere, uh, which I've seen that play out many, many times, right? We can go easily down the rabbit hole. Absolutely, you can go down that. But, um, you know, as I said, when you sit with a data analyst and you start listening and looking, really looking at the data, Data on their own, they say a story. They tell a story, all right? Now, how you get, perceive this story and how you translate it for the business ears is, you know, a great talent to have. And it, and it is something that you can develop. It's not something that, you know, you're born necessarily. Mm, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, as you look into the future, what gives you hope? What are the things you're most excited about in this area of customer experience, customer data over the next couple of years? I love everything that has, you know, uh, that involves uh, retail tech. So how omnichannel um, is is evolving is so much fun. You see, like you know, kind of experiences created now and in store that you could only before had online, and you know, seamless touch points across different channels is amazing. And there's great tech out there that uh, that makes that happen, and it's super. Super exciting to to work with this uh, type of uh, tech, but also this type of visionaries, if you like, because there are um, there is a certain level of brand marketing into that, but also a certain level of data. So back to my point earlier, you know, the brand marketeers and the and the nerds of the marketing have come together with great tech and create experiences across the board. And this is an amazing thing to, to view. Well, Despina, this has been a real pleasure. It's so good to see you and see you doing well um, and continuing that journey and excited about the future as much as I've ever seen you excited. Uh, so that is uh, great to see. And uh, any, any final thoughts from you? No, thank you for, for having me. For sure, you know, all the work that you're doing with retail media networks and all that, I monitor really closely. You know, I think there is a lot 
to be um, to be done in synergies between, as we said, first party data within uh, businesses and in uh, in retailers. So I will keep my eyes, you know, on all your uh, fantastic conversations that we have with great people. Excellent. Well, Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, keep your. If you change your phone number, let me know so that I can call you at the new number because uh, you're one of my go tos to understand uh, this very complex world in, in very understandable ways. So thank you again for being on the show and uh, take care. I'll see you soon. That's it for this episode of It's a Customer's World. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends, and I'd be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's a Customer's World podcast is a product of the University of Arkansas's Customer-Centric Leadership Initiative and a Walton College original production. 